You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine at University of Illinois at Chicago, Dr. Jay Goldstein. What are the complications associated with inflammatory bowel disease in pregnancy? What types of medications for IBD are safest for expectant mothers? Joining us today to discuss women's reproductive health and inflammatory bowel disease is Dr. Maria Abreu, Professor of Medicine and Chief Division of Gastroenterology at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Abreu. Thank you, Jay. Women who have inflammatory bowel disease are often pregnant or can become pregnant. And what is the most important thing that they need to know? Well, sure. I think the most important thing they need to know that in pregnancy is that the most important thing is that the mother be healthy in order to have a healthy child. And in order to achieve that, often we have to use medicines to keep the mother healthy in order for her to carry the baby successfully. And one of the most common mistakes I see made, not only by gastroenterologists, but also by obstetricians, is that they recommend women discontinue their medications when they're either thinking about getting pregnant or actually during the first trimester when they've discovered that they're pregnant. And obviously we all know that by the time you discover you're pregnant, you're most of the way through the first trimester anyway. And then women flare and they can have miscarriages and have other complications related to discontinuing their medications. Well, let's start out with the planned pregnancy. What do you tell your patients who come in saying that they want to become pregnant? Well, I am very supportive. I think that generally women who are interested in getting pregnant are feeling well. One of the other problems is sometimes people discourage women from having children because they're concerned that they might flare during the pregnancy, and that's a horrible thing since we know that women are most reproductive during their 20s and and 30s, and if you put it off for too long, I think that will contribute to infertility in this population of women. And in women that I have an opportunity to counsel, then I've had the opportunity to have a conversation with them about the medicines they're taking and the relative risks and benefits of continuing those medications. I also then have an opportunity to guide them to the right obstetricians. Usually I have a perinatologist or a high-risk OB person involved as well, not because at the end I expect anything to go wrong, but really during the pregnancy I like to have them more frequently monitored than other normal or non-IBD women because of the risk of low birth weight babies and and the moms who have IBD. When women who want to become pregnant begin to try, so to speak, does IBD influence the fertility rate? At least in, in Crohn's disease, what's actually been discovered is that the highest contributor to infertility is actually voluntary infertility, meaning that women either choose not to have children for all the complex reasons that women might not, might choose not to, or they've been discouraged by their physicians from getting pregnant, as I, as I mentioned before. In ulcerative colitis, women who've had surgery for their ulcerative colitis, and the surgery is generally a J-pouch or a total proctocolectomy with a J-pouch, women actually, as a result of that surgery, can have decreased fertility, actually about half of that of women who don't have that surgery. It's thought to be related to the fact that so much of that particular surgery is occurring in the pelvis with all the pelvic dissection and so forth that the adhesions might have a big influence on the uh, infertility. So it's more of a plumbing problem. It can be bypassed by having in vitro fertilization, which for which they have a, a quite you know, nice rate of getting pregnant, just as good as any uh, as a woman without IBD. So it can be circumvented, especially since obviously most women who are going to have J-pouch surgery 
are generally having it because they're refractory to medical therapy. So we have to work around that. So the fertility, I would say overall, fertility is not terribly decreased in women who have IBD. And especially again, when they start feeling, when they start feeling well, I actually think that, you know, they're probably even more likely to get pregnant than anybody else. Dave, maybe a little tangential, but use of birth control pills and the like in an IBD population, frowned on if they don't want to become pregnant, encouraged. Are there side effects that we should know about? Yeah, I actually think that most birth control, most oral contraceptives are well tolerated in women who have IBD. There is literature that women are more likely to have active disease when they're taking birth control. I think that's not, I think that's old literature, really not well done studies. Women who have very active disease can be hypercoagulable. That's especially true in women with colitis. And so that would be the only little concern that I would have about that. But overall, you know, nowadays the the birth control pills are very low in estrogen and so forth. And so I think it's probably the most commonly used by all of my patients without any seeming problem. Let's get right to the heart of the issue. What, as a general statement, can you say about the influence of pregnancy on the natural history of inflammatory bowel disease? And you may want to break that down to ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Well, it's actually about the same, Jay, for both of them, and it's the rule of thirds. A third of women get better, a third of women stay the same, a third of women get worse. And what I tell women is that pregnancy is really a very long time, even though they tell you nine months, it's really closer to 10 months, and of course, a lot of things can happen in that period of time. And it doesn't help to know, actually, ironically, what other previous pregnancies were like for that woman. In other words, you know, did they, when they were pregnant last time, were they, you know, were they in remission for the entire pregnancy? It could be different pregnancy to pregnancy. There's like a little smidge of data from Susie Kane, who's now at the Mayo Clinic, that she studied something already known to be true in other autoimmune diseases where if the baby is a different HLA group than the mom, actually it leads to more tolerance and it, it leads to a woman being more likely to be in remission during the pregnancy. But of course, that's not practical. That's more theoretical than practical for a pregnancy. So the short answer is the best strategy is to have a woman in remission at the time she conceives and to keep her there. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Goldstein, and joining me to discuss women's reproductive health and inflammatory bowel disease is Dr. Maria Abreu, Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Gastroenterology at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Well, let's go to the major issue that I hear as a practicing gastroenterologist. Which medications are good, which ones are not, and why not, and which are good because of what? You know, the most commonly prescribed medicines for IBD are 5-aminosalicylates, otherwise known as mesalamine. And these medicines, you know, they're, they're category B, but as far as I'm concerned, they could be category A. They've actually been used in pregnancy and studied in pregnancy, and they're safe. These are drugs that are kind of, as you know, in some way derivative of aspirin, but, but they don't have any antiplatelet effect like aspirin would. And these medications, in fact, in studies, in several different types of studies, Canadian studies as well as even a cohort from Kaiser that has been looked at. In fact, women who are taking it have better pregnancy outcomes. Now, of course, these drugs work as a class far better on ulcerative colitis than they do on Crohn's disease, so they should be absolutely maintained. Many of the antibiotics are safe in pregnancy. You know, there's a little bit of data that Crohn's responds to antibiotics 
And so uh, metronidazole has been looked at at least acutely because, you know, women get have gotten pregnant accidentally while they're taking it to treat venereal diseases. And so we know that, that flagell is, or metronidazole is uh, safe during the uh, first trimester, et cetera. And, but I wouldn't use ciprofloxacin because it might have an effect on cartilage. And then the ones that are the most controversial are the thiopurines, things like azathioprine and 6-mercaptopurine. And women who are taking them generally have lower birth weight babies, depending on the disease state. But the reason that those data are flawed, Jay, is that obviously women who have who have been prescribed thiopurines for their disease obviously have more severe disease. So it's a very di- it's very difficult to have the proper comparative group. And so, at least in humans, there's no real evidence that there's any teratogenicity from these drugs. Although in mice, you know, given at very high doses, the thiopurines do cause, are teratogenic, and that is why they're category D. So one of the hard parts of my job is to try to convince a woman who has read that these are category D, or an obstetrician who read that these are category D, that in fact the benefits outweigh the risk because there's no real good data that in humans it's teratogenic, and certainly I have had many patients have gorgeous babies on these thiopurines. And then, you know, our, probably our most effective therapies now for IBD are the biologic therapies. At least for now, the only biologics that we're talking about are anti-TNFs, of which three are approved for Crohn's disease, infliximab, adalumumab, and sertoluzumab, pegol. So we have the most data on infliximab because it's been around the longest, all three are Category B medications because there's no apparent teratogenicity, certainly in animals, and at least in the human data that we have, there hasn't been any observed teratogenicity. The only thing that we do think about and worry a bit about is that at least for infliximab and adalumumab, these are IgG1 antibodies that cross the placenta. And in fact, because of passive immunity, IgG1 antibodies in in particular are preferentially transported across the placenta. And so the babies are born generally with higher blood levels of the infliximab and adalumumab than the mothers have at the time of birth. Now, what does that mean? Well, we haven't seen anything bad happen as a result of that, but the only thing that we recommend is that for babies born of mothers on anti-TNF agents, that they forego the rotavirus vaccine, which is the only live vaccine that's administered very shortly after birth. So we ask women not to have a rotavirus vaccine for their babies. And then the two drugs that are absolutely contraindicated in pregnancy are methotrexate, which is an abortifacient early in the first trimester, and the other is thalidomide. And, you know, now that we have the anti-TNF agents, we use very little thalidomide for Crohn's, but for a while there, before we had infliximab, we used a thalidomide more regularly. And, of course, I think most physicians are familiar with the phycomelia that was associated with the use of thalidomide. You didn't mention corticosteroids. We still prescribe corticosteroids. You know, they've been around for a long time, and they're safe. I don't think they increase the risk of cleft palate, but that's always been the dig on steroids in pregnancy. And of course, we reach for that in the unfortunate woman who flares because we know that corticosteroids are generally highly effective. The only things that can happen, of course, is that women become hyperglycemic, babies can become bigger, but usually in, in these IBD patients, as I mentioned, they have low birth weight babies anyway, so that doesn't turn out to be terribly important. There has also been, again, although we worry about it, that babies might be adrenally insufficient because they've had their cortisol suppressed from the mom's steroids, I'm not aware of any cases where that's actually happened. So it's more of a theoretical concern than it is a real concern. What about breastfeeding? 
It's a great idea. Women should breastfeed. And a little bit of epidemiologic data that it might be protective to breastfeed. Many drugs do cross into breast milk, but the concentrations that they reach in milk and the amount of milk that a baby drinks would not give it any any amount of the drug to have an effect on the baby. That includes the thiopurines. The parent drug, which is the only thing that could get across, gets across at very, very low levels. For people that are even worried about that, what I do is I tell women that they should pump breast milk before they take a dose of the thiopurine and then discard the breast milk from, you know, from the two hours following giving themselves the dose. It has to do with the fact of, you know, the kinetics of how the drug is absorbed and how it peaks in the blood, the parent compound, which is the only thing that we worry about getting into the baby. But again, the calculations of the amount of the drug that's in breast milk and how much milk a baby would get is is very, very small. And then the anti-TNFs, mechanistically, there really shouldn't be a way that these antibodies substantially cross into breast milk. And the little bit of case reports here and there of the IgG1 antibodies, at least, is that they're not detectable in breast milk. What about supportive care, vitamins, and nutritional supplements? Is there anything special about pregnancy beyond pregnancy itself? Not really. I mean, you know, the the folate, you know, uh, I think in, in some ways our IBD patients are more sensitized to taking extra folate anyway. And so folic acid, they're starting out anemic. And so to the extent that pregnancy is a even further anemia producing state, they really need to take supplemental iron during pregnancy. But other than that, there aren't any other glaring nutritional requirements. I would like to thank my guest from the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, Dr. Maria Abreu. Dr. Abreu, thank you very much for being our guest this week on GI Insights. Thank you so much, Jay. You've been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA.